if I can sit with the discomfort of my feelings about this for a moment, then a path forward begins to emerge. Of course, we could slam the door closed and pretend that we don't know what we now know, but that doesn't change the fact that it happens. Welcome to Thin Places, a podcast experiment from Zion Episcopal Church in Douglaston, Queens. I'm Father Carl Adair, the Assistant Rector. And I'm Mother Lindsay Lunham, the Rector of Zion. On this season of the podcast, we're sharing stories about thin places in time. Stories of people who step across a threshold into a new chapter of their lives. And when they look back through that doorway, their past has a different shape than they'd thought. We've heard stories from Zion parishioners, from Katie, Dylan, Michael, Christina, and Marguerite, and about the thresholds that they've crossed. In our last episode, we heard a story from the Bible about the Apostle Peter, who was drawn across a boundary he'd never have expected to cross when he recognized that the Holy Spirit was working among Gentiles, and not only among the children of Israel. For each of these people, crossing a threshold demanded a reconsideration of the story they had been living in and that they step into a larger story that God had prepared for them. It demanded that they acknowledge the gifts of the past they needed to bring with them, and it demanded that they leave some things behind and confront some of their wounds that needed healing. Today, we're talking about a threshold that Zion is crossing. For the last two years, the Zion leadership has been grappling with the difficult discovery that our founding families enslave people. We've been asking what it means that the Zion community was founded with wealth created by the forced labor of enslaved people, and that those children of God have been left out of Zion's history for almost 200 years. So, Mother Lindsay, you're here today so we can talk about some of the details we've learned and how our past as a parish looks differently now that we know them. Yeah, these are facts that we can't unknow. We've seen the records and we can't unsee them. And to connect that to what you said a minute ago, that's the threshold we're crossing. So knowing what we know now, when we look back at our past, how are we going to make sense of it? What stories do we need to lift up? And what stories do we need to let go of? What's the new story that God is calling us into? So before I talk about some of our findings in greater detail, I just wanted to ask if there's any pastoral guidance that you would offer to those listening about how to receive challenging information. I know that I can get defensive or shut down when I'm presented with stuff I don't really want to hear. Is there anything for us to bear in our hearts and minds as Christians that will help us stay present and grounded as we take this in? I think we need to remember that each and every one of us including those who lived long ago, were and are more than the worst thing they've ever done. No one is just a slave owner or just a criminal. Those things matter, but they are not the sum total of a person. Really, really great perspective. Helps me anyway. So... What are the most important things that the Zion History Project has discovered so far? Well, the big finding is that Zion's founding families enslaved at least 43 people. 
Zion was founded in 1830, and up until 1827, just three years prior, slavery was legal in New York State, and quite widespread. We searched an index of various census records, archives from the city of New York and the towns of Flushing and Hempstead, which at the time included all of Northeast Queens, and we found that of the 17 people who signed Zion's Articles of Incorporation, 12 of them had enslaved people in their households prior to 1827. That means that 200 years ago, there were children of God in bondage in our neighborhood. Okay, what do we know about these people who were enslaved? Not much. We know only a few of their names. We found an 1807 record of a Mary, who at the time was seven years old, enslaved by Obadiah Valentine. We have a record of a Tom, enslaved by Richard Allen, and we have a record that on August 22, 1814, an enslaved woman named Coney gave birth to a baby boy named Isaac, who immediately became the property of her owner, Richard Foster. We know the most about Charles, Elsie, Caesar, and Margaret Pine, who were enslaved by Winant and Maria Van Zant. Their names and some of their birth dates were inscribed in the Van Zant family Bible. Charles, Elsie, Caesar, and Margaret were all born into slavery in the home of Maria's father, Israel Underhill of Westchester, New York. These human beings were then gifted as property by Israel to his daughter Maria and her husband Winant shortly after their marriage. And Winant and Maria enslaved them for at least 25 years. We've discovered that Margaret Pine has a fascinating story, which I'd love to tell in a future episode. We surmise that in most of these cases, enslaved people lived under the same roof as those who enslaved them. The census data tells us that most of these households included one of three enslaved people. The one outlier among our founding families uh, was Eliza Allen, who in 1810 enslaved 21 people on their farm. I guess the other question that people might be asking is, so how widespread was slavery in New York in the early 1800s? Were these 12 of Zion's founders just people of their time? What has the History Project's research suggested about that? I mean, I guess I would say two things. First, it was a bit shocking to us working on this that New York was, until 1827, a slave state. I grew up in New York State. I went to public school. I did the history curriculum. And not once was it mentioned that, for example, in 1730, one out of five people living in New York City was an enslaved African. Not once was it mentioned that there was an active slave market on Wall Street where human beings were bought and sold. As we get into the lifetime of our founders, free black people are establishing communities in New York City, but in 1790, 36% of households in Queens, Brooklyn, and Staten Island included at least one enslaved person. So enslavement was, in that way, very much of the times. So you're saying that if we acknowledge how important slavery was to New York society and to the economic life of the city, Zion's founding families were not necessarily outliers. The sin of slavery was built into the structure of life in New York, just as much as it was on southern plantations. And Zion's founders likely took that for granted. I think that's right. 
But I'm hesitant to say that we can't hold these ancestors to account for participating in the sin of slavery just because they were people of their time. Because you know what else was of the times in the late 18th and early 19th centuries? The movement to abolish slavery. Abolitionists were making public speeches and writing in newspapers and Swayed by these arguments, the New York State Legislature had voted in 1799 to gradually emancipate all enslaved people in the state. We know that Zion's founding families continued to hold men, women, and children in bondage after that date. In other words, they knew the arguments that slavery was wrong, but they didn't change their ways. We have some records of manumission, where one of our founders legally freed a person who they had enslaved. In some cases, this may have been an act of sincere repentance, a recognition that they had done wrong by denying the dignity of a child of God by treating them as property or as a commodity. Or, as we'll explore in a later episode, it it may be that those children of God had ceased to be useful or profitable and were kicked to the curb to fend for themselves. There are a lot of things we don't know for sure, and maybe we'll never know. They knew it was wrong, but many of them didn't change their ways? It makes me wonder what we will be judged for in 200 years. What are the things we know we should do differently, but just don't? Yeah, I, I think that humility is so important when we consider history. We also are living in history, and we take things for granted that we likely shouldn't. I know that I think about action we could take to address the climate crisis we've caused, or mass incarceration, or the way our food system treats animals. So, as you said earlier, the fact that our founding families enslaved other human beings is something that we can't unknow. We've seen the records, and we can't unsee them. And in that way, we as Zion have crossed this threshold. Mother Lindsay, how does Zion's past look different to you? A few years ago, I was tracing some of my own ancestry, and there was a moment when it looked like one of my ancestors was a Confederate soldier in the Civil War, and it really shook me. When I really considered why it bothered me, it was because it shattered a story that I had told myself and was likely told by others that my white family was exempt from the evils of slavery because we were always in the North or that many of our ancestors did not live in the United States when slavery was legal. I just assumed that I was off the hook for being accountable to the harms of slavery. Fast forward to two years ago, And I learned that the family that founded this parish that I love and that I serve once enslaved people, that their wealth, likely built by the institution of slavery, made this church possible. That was a threshold for me. And I was not sure what was on the other side. If I can sit with the discomfort of my feelings about this for a moment, Then a path forward begins to emerge. Of course, we could slam the door closed and pretend that we don't know what we now know, but that doesn't change the fact that it happens. So the path forward is acknowledging that Wynette Van Zant, 
our founder, is complex. He did some things that are very wrong. And he also founded this Christ-centered parish, and he was a beloved child of God. And so am I. I am a sinner and a beloved child of God. Like Winant, I am benefiting from wealth accumulated long ago on the backs of enslaved people. And now the question is, what is my responsibility to those benefits? And what would you say about this other question? What's the story that we had been living in before we learned this? And do you have any initial thoughts about the story that God might be calling us into now? I'm not sure that we are on the other side of the threshold yet. We are still getting our bearings about who we are now that we know more about our history. And we're not alone in this. Scripture is full of stories about people who operated under one set of ideas about how the world works and who they were, only to have an encounter with God or another person and then expand into a deeper and more expansive story, a story that gives life and meaning and purpose instead of a story that hurts, diminishes, or destroys. So right now, especially through this podcast, we're at the place where we are telling the story and hearing it and then discerning how it will inform the future that will help us to not make the same mistakes again so we can be the people God calls us to be. We are also in the process of creating a memorial to the 43 people who were enslaved by our founding members. I think it is vitally important that we make this part of our story visible and literally carved in stone so that it'll be much more difficult to sweep it under the rug or let it become another skeleton in the closet. It's not enough and it's not a guarantee but it is a start. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how to say this, but you know, through our work in, on Zion's history, we, we found a number of different narrative histories of Zion that were written by parishioners in generations past. Uh, the story of Zion written for the 100th anniversary in 1930, etc. And, and almost all of those histories focus on us on the people of Zion. They're, they're stories about how great we are, and they all start by talking about how great our founder was, how great Wine and Van's aunt was. And I've come to feel like that kind of story, a story that gives us an identity as good people because we're spiritual descendants of this good person, I feel like that kind of story is really unstable. It's like building our house on sand because, as you said, Wynant was a complex person, a sinner beloved by God, as are we. But that more complex reality makes the heroic narrative of Zion ring false to me. Wynant and his wife Maria enslaved four people. That has to be part of the story. So I, I wonder if the alternative to the, the heroic narrative would be to organize our story as Zion, not around uh, our glorious past, but around God's dream of justice and peace and reconciliation, the dream that God is always, always inviting us into, 
and inviting us as sinners, as the complex people in compromised situations that we are. In Jesus, God shows us that we're all invited to join in that work. We're all, we all belong in the community defined by that dream of the kingdom of God. So I, so I feel like we might be letting go of a story that roots our identity in our past or in our own goodness and being invited into a story that roots our identity in who God is and the orients that identity toward the future that God is opening for us and for everybody. Right. I mean, when I look at those old booklets in our safe, it is about how erudite our community is and how much we love music. And it's so beautiful. And we are people who love beauty and we appreciate the finer things. So we know that our religion is superior because it is so beautiful and artistic. And that is just flimsy and not interesting or compelling to me at all. And when I look at those documents, I think I don't want to be a part of a community like that because I'm not always erudite or shiny or beautiful. Um, I can't appreciate (laughs) whatever art they're talking about. A way more compelling story is about a community that knows it needs God, that knows it's, it's beautiful and loved, but also needs help and needs Jesus, needs both the rescue, <laughs> the, the salvation, the companionship and the power that Jesus offers us, and also to claim that Jesus's existence means that we are worth it. That Jesus would actually come to be with us means, yes, I need him, but also I'm worthy of his presence. That is a story that's real that I want to be a part of. And to have a community that's centered around that is a community I want to be a part of and to share with others. So the idea of Wine at Van Zandt is also somebody who could repent, somebody who could realize there's another way to live that doesn't require diminishing another person and can be transformed. I want to be in that community with him like that. But if he's a hero and on a pedestal, it's boring, it's brittle, it's frail, it won't hold up to the scrutiny of lived experience. Thin Places is a podcast experiment from Zion Episcopal Church in Douglaston, Queens, produced by me, Father Carl Adair. Our music is by Nick Marcella. It's been really great to talk with Mother Lindsay in this episode, and we will hear from her again. We'll be back to continue this work on Zion's history to sit in the discomfort and the possibility of this thin place in a few weeks. Until then, peace be with you.